Welcome to Football and Society, the podcast looking at societal issues through the lens of the beautiful game. In this series, we're exploring topics including the importance of material objects for long-distance fans, perceptions of race and class in English amateur football, and the politics of a Palestinian football team. I'm Norman Reilly, and I'm joined by Ash McMullen and Chris Shipman. And this week, we're exploring exposure to gambling sponsorship among young football supporters. The revenue generated by gambling sponsorship for English Premier League teams rose to nearly £350 million in the 2019-20 season. The logos of gambling companies are ubiquitous when watching professional football, on players' shirts, along the advertising holdings, and in the countless adverts at half-time. A study published in 2020 looked into the effects of gambling's visibility for children who follow the sport, focusing on products and merchandise that are specifically targeted at them. This included sticker albums, trading cards and football magazines. The researchers analysed these by counting all visible gambling logos and the number of different brands seen, and they found that logos and branding featured prominently. Therefore, despite legislation forbidding direct advertising aimed at children, they are nevertheless exposed to it indirectly. The authors note that it is difficult to limit this exposure, since images are mobile and circulate within a visual economy that invests them with meaning and significance. The study also found that youngsters are likely to have a larger portfolio of teams that they follow than adults, which increases the likelihood they will come across signs of gambling in some form or other. In this manner, gambling advertising finds its way into the worlds of young football fans, a matter of concern given that they lack the critical faculties to understand the risks of addictive behaviour. The exposure of children to gambling logos is an important, if unintended, consequence of the increasing sponsorship of football teams by gambling companies worldwide. Dr. Natalie Jahari and Dr. Gavin Weston, two of the authors of this study, have kindly agreed to join us on the Football and Society podcast today to discuss their research. Natalie is a research associate in the School of International Development at the University of East Anglia, and Gavin is a lecturer in the Department of Anthropology at Goldsmiths University. Natalie and Gavin, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Oh, our pleasure. Um, could you tell us um, how you became interested in this particular aspect of gambling? So it started at Goldsmiths University. So uh, Rebecca Cassidy, who was my head of department uh, until very recently, she does research on uh, gambling worldwide. So she's looked at all different aspects of gambling and she came to gambling through having done research on the horse racing industry. And I'd been playing with like a, a type of research called collaborative event ethnography as a way of getting students to do research alongside uh, members of staff. And it was just a really interesting way of getting a really large research team together, uh, training up students and, and getting everybody to do some hands-on research. And when Rebecca heard about this, she, she drew my attention to a piece of research that had been done in Australia which had led to gambling advertising being uh, restricted before the watershed. So uh, it was a piece of research that in, like, like ordinarily would take a large number of researchers. It would cost a large amount of money. And we just pounced on it as an opportunity to uh, get some students on board doing a piece of research with the potential of it making a change. So it was through Rebecca that we, we came to this research. And then um, yeah, we had to learn the ropes very, very quickly and, and sort of, yeah, I mean, so my ordinary area of study would be the anthropology of violence. Um, I've jumped across sideways and yeah, it's a fascinating area and, and we came to it that way. Yeah, it's a really, really, really fascinating article. Um, so I'm glad 
he jumped across and did it. Um, do you anticipate Garland's sponsorship going the same way as alcohol advertising in football stadiums and on football merchandise? Or is the financial power of the gambling industry too intertwined with the game for it to be contemplated? I think we'd definitely like to see it going the same way as alcohol and tobacco sponsorship. I think what our research showed was that it's just impossible to separate out the exposure of children to the prevalence of advertising when it's connected to football shirts, when it's connected to stadiums. It's just there in the ecosystem of sports in an area that children are regularly attending and they're exposed to it in uh, like social media they're exposed to it through the football shirts they're exposed to it through sticker albums they're exposed to it through um, the football magazines they buy like it's it's not just so you can take it off the shirts of the, the, the children buy and they might not be wearing the gambling logo but they're going to have dozens, possibly even hundreds of, of tiny versions of these logos hovering around in their bedrooms. So I think, I think mm. it's definitely necessary to make additional steps and it's definitely necessary to legislate further on it if we aren't going to accept that as just the way it is now. Mm. Yeah, and I, th I think the problem is today it's, it's become normalised. We kind of just accept this association and actually studies have shown that... Um, before 2005, the relationship with football gambling sponsors on shirts just didn't really exist to the extent it does now. But now we accept that this is part and parcel of football. And we think actually, you know, to try and uncouple this would suddenly be really difficult. Actually, that's just not been the historical case. So I think it's more about a will to want to change this and really to put pressure um, on government to, to actually make some concrete changes. Yeah, I mean, it's only been going on since 2005. And already we're talking about it as being so deeply embedded as to be impossible to root mm -hmm. out. And that's just, that's a really weird mindset to have got into so quickly. When we can, like, we can think to, back to when it was a regular uh, occurrence to see smoking sponsorship in Formula One or, or in uh, snooker. Like, it's, it's, that at the time must have seemed every bit as normal. And now it would seem so bizarre to see it today, although it is slowly weaseling its way back into Formula One through um, yeah, tobacco sponsorship in relation to vaping and, and sort of yeah, non-smoking yeah. non related products. But like the fact that we see that as strange now, uh, that hopefully one day we'll see this sponsorship of gambling as being every bit as weird. Yep. And you say in the article that Luton actually defied a sponsorship deal and refused one. Do you think the responsibility and in a way, pragmatically, the only way gambling sponsorship will end is if the clubs themselves take a stand and do the same kind of thing? I don't think it's the only way. I'd quite like there to be legislation to stop it, because if you make people, if you make clubs take responsibility for their own decisions, I mean, they have investors, they're uh, supposed to take as they maximize their revenue that's what their shareholders are going to be expecting they that that's going to be the major basis for their decisions that they're making whereas if you just legislate on it if you just take it out of their hands and just make it not a decision for them to make around whether or not they're trying to market themselves as family oriented or whether or not they're trying to uh, attract other types of sponsors if you just remove that as part of the decision making process 
it's, it ceases to be an issue. I mean, so it's really good that clubs like, well, it's really good that Luton exists and it's really good that there are other uh, football clubs out there that have chosen not to be sponsored by betting firms. But at the same time, it's a drop in the ocean. I think the problem here, what we found with the with the visibility study was it in a magazine, you'll see multiple teams. Kids will come across multiple teams. So if you've got a handful of teams banning kind of sponsorships themselves on the shirts, it doesn't mean that their fans or even other kids will come across sponsorship on other shirts because that visibility is there in all these forms of media that children engage with. So it has to be a central decision. It has to be across the board. Speaking of legislation, at the end of this season in Spain, La Liga is going to be banning gambling sponsorship with clubs like Valencia and Sevilla, who are currently sponsored by betting companies forced to find new sponsors. To what extent do you think this might be viewed as a test case for a ban in the UK? So there's currently a a major review of, of gambling sponsorship going on. And there are, so when the review was first announced, there was major rumblings that this was going to lead to a, a outright ban on shirt sponsorship. We just need to keep a sustained pressure if we really want to see that. We need to uh, make sure that this is something that is staying in people's minds so that like easy options or compromises aren't the innate fallback of a government that's failed to regulate gambling advertising properly over the past 15 years. Um, I think, yeah, it's a really good step forward for European football. And it's a really good step forward that there is, that there are countries out there that are thinking seriously about what the implications of gambling sponsorship are on, on shirts. But I don't think that necessarily leads to the same thing happening in, in UK legislation. I think there that only happens through sustained pressure. It's a fantastic thing that this legislation has come into place in Spain because I think it's indicative of the way in which research and evidence is pointing us towards the, like, the harmful nature and what we might expect to be the knock-on effects of gambling advertising, particularly for children, but also for problem gamblers. And I think that's the way that the evidence is is pointing us now. And I think that this is the beginning of something, but I don't think it's necessarily an inherent step that the British government will definitely follow suit. There is the gambling review that is going on at the moment. And I would like to see, and I would hopefully expect that there will be legislation being brought into effect that will limit gambling advertising, but it's a case of, what those limits are, how partial, how like what are the, the, the small caveats that are go, going to be in there going to be. For every one of those caveats, that will be a loophole that gambling advertising will wiggle through. Yeah. And like, I don't fully expect all gambling advertising to disappear, but shirt sponsorship now, I think that the evidence is out there that this is something that children are seeing and consuming, and it is definitely harmful. So even if it's just that one thing, shirt sponsorship of gambling advertising is banned that would be a really good first step but i don't think it's it's necessarily in the bag this is something that's going to be achieved through sustained pressure and that needs to be kept up completely agree when you were talking there i just started thinking about the the government attitude towards fixed um fixed odds betting terminals and how how difficult it's been to, to even 
to limit, you know, the amount of money that people can can spend on, on those. Um, so yeah, it is. It's a. I think it's a long road ahead, but um, obviously a, a really important one to take, no doubt. Um, was there anything in your study hinting at how class and socioeconomic background may influence the impact of gambling sponsorship on children? Um, I think one of the things that that came across really clearly was that gambling sponsorship is visible across all these forms that children engage with. So magazines, trading cards, uh, kind of sticker albums. So really the question then becomes, does class impact what children engage with as football fans? Um, And in my guess would be actually that it doesn't in as much as I think if you're a football fan, fan, um, you will engage with these materials. So actually I think the impact, at least the visibility, will be there across different socioeconomic classes. Um, but there are a few other, other things to consider. Yeah, I mean, so it's not something that we research directly, but just looking at some of the ways in which children are exposed to gambling advertising, one of the things that came up was that one of the primary areas in which they are exposed to gambling advertising is through bookmakers and betting shops on, on high streets. Mm-hmm. And we know that there is a preponderance of those in level uh, those betting shops in areas with higher levels of poverty so there's a clear like uh, there's a difference in the ecosystems that that children are exposed to based upon where they live so that would be one area in which we can see that there is a difference but that's not just about where they're exposed to the logos that's about the wider issue of that's where they're exposed to bookmakers and gambling and their families are exposed to bookmakers and gambling and like it's something that is more holistic rather than just being about it being more directly targeted at them. One of the problems with children being exposed to gambling, as we said in the introduction, and it was something you pointed out in the study, is that they lack the critical faculties to actually acknowledge the risks of that behaviour. Is one potential solution or part of a solution to bring education to schools about gambling? Or do you think it's a bit much to expect children of that age to take that on board in a way. Yeah, I always find these kinds of answers really frustrating because what we are in fact doing is saying that all the emphasis should be on children. Let's teach the children how to solve these problems that we as adults created. So education, it sounds like the right answer, but really it isn't. It's a lot of pressure there. Um, and yes, I, I don't think children do have the the kind of faculty to understand it got gambling. You know, the way it's marketed to adults is very complicated. You know, there's a lot of psychology involved and we somehow want to equip children with the the strength to somehow counter this. I think it's a really big ask. Um, In one of our, in the first study, in the recall of a gambling study we did, one child uh, gave us a little quote that kind of summarizes what they thought. And they said, when we asked them about, about gambling, they said, because if they love football, then bet, then gambling is part of wanting their team to win. So they don't even make this association. That feeling that you have of loyalty, of support, you know, that euphoria you get when your team wins is now being transferred in subtle ways to these gambling logos. And I think that's the real danger. It's that emotional relationship between gambling logos and the team is not being uncoupled for children. They're associating those good feelings with their team winning. And that, I think, is a very dangerous thing. That's, that's such an excellent answer. It just got me thinking of if footballers were allowed to advertise cigarettes, right? And a kid saw their favourite footballer smoking a specific type of cigarette. They'd want to smoke that cigarette. That's, that is the reality of it. And um, yeah, 
that was it. That's a really excellent answer. Thank you. Not advertising it in the first place. It's just so much easier than, than yeah, having yeah. to have some kind of built-in cure in the education system and expecting teachers to do that as well against the backdrop of everything else that they have to do. I mean, yeah, it's a tricky enough job as it is, let alone explaining gambling, advertising uh, and gambling. And I mean, like how much of gambling would you have to explain to kids in order to make sense of what it is that you're like, preparing them to, to counter? I mean, it, it, yeah, it unleashes more problems than it solves. But yeah, yeah getting rid of the advertising. You mentioned the uh, complexities and sophistication of marketing. Uh, and I just wondered about this. So in, in recent years, gambling firms have spent huge amounts of money on content creators for their social media presences, uh, often comedians. Um, at the moment, of course, comedians are not able to perform, so uh, income for them, but it's been something that's been going on for the last few years. Uh, and they do this as an attempt to humanise uh, and bring a bit of banter, uh, that kind of horrible word there, to their online presences. I just wonder whether you have a sense of those who are under 18 engage with those social channels uh, and, and the content that gambling companies um, seed on them? Uh, and if so, how they might shape perceptions? So it wasn't something, again, that we directly studied, but the extent to which children are, are, are encountering gambling advertising on social media was something that, that was noted across the board. So they are exposed to gambling advertising when they're online. It's, it, it is part of how they are how it's encroaching into their, their, like the ecosystem that they have as part of their, their footballing lives. And also, it, like, uh, there was a, I can't remember which football team, but I think it was a number of different football teams had gambling sponsorship was coming up on their websites, on the children's forums as well, until it was, until they were alerted to it and then they took it down. So it's, it's something that just encroaches if there is no thought about what's going on. But the fact that they are employing content creators just really does flag that this is something that is being pitched towards a younger generation. I'm not saying necessarily under 18, but certainly like the Zuma generation. This is like, this is an approach to the marketing of gambling that is ex explicitly not about directly engaging with the over 25s. This is about like the under 25s and, and getting them on board as part of a market that they can extract resources from it's not something that we specifically looked into but it's certainly something that fits with uh, fits in with my growing cynicism about the gambling industry cynicism with regards to the gambling industry is, is definitely definitely justified and it's i think it's interesting that you obviously mentioned you know the visibility of bookies on on high streets in areas that are you know high up on the uh, index of multiple deprivation and you know we're where we're based really in southeast London, you only have to walk around certain high streets and you can and you can see it. You can you can see it, you know, these areas where there are high levels of poverty, there are lots of lots of gambling shops. And and I think the it, it is it all just it all just ties in and there is there's an, a massive element of exploitation. They they are looking to exploit anyone they can and, and kids are, you know, relatively straightforward to exploit through a means such as football. So yeah, the more the more I talk and the more I'm just realizing no, I think this paper is just so so important. Um could you please give us a few words on the concept of remix culture? I found this really fascinating and how it applies to football. Okay, yeah. So when I was starting to do some of the research about child fans in particular, I found that there wasn't really very much out there. A lot of our understanding of children's fandom comes from research based on adults. And actually when we look at how children engage with football, We've, we kind of find this remix culture in that they use multiple uh, types of merchandise. 
So they engage with things like the magazines, like the trading cards, but also their bedrooms. Are, you know, they've got duvet covers, they've got stickers, they've got posters. So they engage with merchandise far more than adults. But what's more important is the way they use that in their lives is very different from how we as adults do. So they use it to signal social relationships. You know, they might have the poster of, of their granddad's team because they support that, but they're demonstrating, you know, this loyalty to their granddad. Uh, they will use discussions around football or talking about different teams that they support in the playground as a way to make relationships with children, you know, to, to be in with the other crowd. So they have this, this way of attaching meaning that doesn't necessarily coincide with how we understand football as adults. And I think this is really specific um, and important when you're trying to find what is the impact of football related issues such as gambling on children. We have to understand that their world is very different to ours. This relationship with emotion, this relationship with, with family, this relationship with how they play, how they make friends, how they engage with the world is all being filtered through multiple aspects of football. So a sticker book isn't just about collecting your team. It could be about collecting, you know, your, your family's supporting team. Showing, for example, one of the kids we spoke to, um, he was talking about how football had a specific relationship meaning to him because it was something he did when his dad visited who didn't live with him at the time. So there are these powerful, strong emotions tied into um, children's football fandom that we really need to start looking into and starting to take account of when we are deciding about policies and the impact of these policies on children. And we're focusing very much on gambling logos here as the visual cues for children. I was wondering what you thought about the potential for stories to have a, an effect. So for example, a negative story could be a gambling addiction. Do you think children would also be sensitive to that kind of information and could that have a deterrent effect on the appeal of gambling? I think negative stories about people's experiences are important as a counterbalance to uh, the, the dopamine rush of winning. I mean, I think that's that's the really important thing that they stand there as. Like, this is what might happen. This is what might go wrong. This is why it's not just about small winnings and small losses. It's not just about pleasure and, and sort of corresponding sadness, that there is bigger problems that are connected with gambling and it can destroy lives and it can destroy families and it can destroy so many aspects of your social relationships and your ability to, to, the, to function. And I think that these stories are really important for exactly that reason. But I just a note of caution that like, there is a, a potential to slip down the educational channel into, and then we bring these people into schools to teach children about what's wrong with gambling <laughs> and, and again put it back in put the onus back on education so I do think that there is definitely a really important space for them but I don't think that's what the onus should be on yeah I think you're kind of thinking maybe like it would have more of an impact on older kids older teens but you've kind of there's like this almost uh, a magical realism isn't there in the way that children engage with with uh, football with gambling you know if that one time you were uh, put a bet on even if it was just with your friend and your team won you know, in the back of your head, there's this association. Maybe it was me putting the bet on, like, that did it. And, like, as adults, we look at that in a very rational way. But I think as children, they don't make the same kind of rational links that we expect. You know, okay, someone comes around to the school, tells them this, this heartbreaking story of how gambling destroyed their lives. 
But are they going to make their own association in their own lives? Are they going to think that applies to me? Are they going to think, well, actually, I'm just putting a bet on with my mate. You know, I'm not even visiting a gambling site. But these are the kind of places where it starts, where the normalization begins. So I think it has to any kind of thing that is evolved education. You know, these examples are great, but it has to be backed up with legislation. It has to be backed up with concrete support. Over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of discussion in the media about loot packs in video games, uh, like the FIFA series being a kind of really prime example. Of course, it's not only um, the preserve of sports games, um, but there are other, other genres as well. But particularly, uh, the FIFA series has been focused on for this. Of course, they're not administered by gambling companies. Um, that said, it's been posited that it blurs the line with gambling and it does offer a way into gambling for children. I know it's not something that you discussed per se in the study, but I just wondered what your thoughts were on this as a kind of way in. Um, so back to remix culture, this is a big part of remix culture is, is football games that kids are playing on a day-to-day basis and, and spending hours, days just inside these games. And then not just connecting the idea of winning and losing to like, the games that you're playing, but also to these loot packs. Like the dopamine hit that you're getting is exactly the same dopamine hit as you get from gambling. Like if you like pull a really good player in in in, in a loot pack, then yeah, like it's gonna feel like a win. It's gonna and like that is that far away from gambling. And it's hard not to see the two things as being part of exactly the same problem. I think there is differences in regards to sponsorship. There's differences in regards to like who they're marketed towards. There is, I mean, certainly there is big differences and there's like, and there's limits to the losses that you can make and and all of these other things. But these games are directly marketed at children and have got gambling-like aspects that are familiarizing them with like the dopamine hit of of the win and yeah i think that is a really big problem your answer to the last question just got me thinking there about obviously presenting people who um who have had problems with gambling and in using them as examples for for children you know to to not become to a certain extent and i think in terms of the effectiveness, absolutely spot on in what you're saying because taking somebody who used drugs into a school and showing kids that this person used drugs, it's not it's not going to stop people if they want to on experiment with drugs as they get older. It's, it's exactly exactly the same logic. It is you're, you're absolutely you're absolutely right on that. Um, and it's really really interesting to hear. Um, but moving on to the last question, actually, um, clearly the the Premier League is the dominant football in force here. But do you have any insights? as the perceptions of gambling among fans of lower league teams where fewer teams are sponsored by gambling firms and might this be offset by children's propensity to follow a number of teams in a way that adults don't. I also thought as well, actually, in terms of remix culture and, and buying items of merchandise, you don't get a lot of that available for lower clubs. You know, you don't get the stickers, for example, or the football cards, do you? So, yeah, really interested in your take on that. So, I think it is a problem across the different leagues and, and across football as a whole. So like the premiership like really crystallizes like that high tier relationship between gambling and football. But then it's the Skybet Championship. And more than 50% of the teams in the Skybet Championship are sponsored by gambling companies. I mean, and that's just shirt sponsors. So it's not even just shirt sponsors either. It's the advertising boarding. It's the uh, it's the um stadiums stadiums it's it's like everything that is there within the general 
like atmosphere and the day-to-day experience and in the match day programs like they are just riddled with gambling advertising it's not just in the premiership that's all the way down so yeah just the other day we were taking our our kid to taekwondo at like a local football club and it's just like it's a really small like it's like a really small football club it's non-league it's for kids and the advertising like the hoarding around the edge had gambling sponsorship uh, while we were conducting research for the first of our two papers, we went off to a number of different venues, with like some of which were football clubs. And yeah, like all these clubs had gambling advertising on their hoardings around the stadium. So it's, it, it is there. I mean, so it, it might not be on the shirts, but it's there at places where kids are playing football. Like it's, it's there at stadiums where they're going to watch non-league football and lower league football. It's there just in the ether of, of football as a whole. And I, I don't suspect that we're going to see all of that being ended in the gambling review. If we can just get it out of the shirt sponsorship on, in the premiership, out of the shirt sponsorship in the championship, there will be much less of it in uh, on match of the day. There'll be much less of it appearing in um, children's magazines and sticker albums and, and tradable cards. If we just take these small steps to get, get it out of the most prominent places where children are most directly engaging with these more practical objects, these things that are more distinctly part of remix culture, then yes, that will have some will have a, a huge effect. But it won't take gambling advertising out of football because it is there all the way down. Yeah, it would be nice to see some steps towards that aspect of it as well. It's so interesting. As again, as, as we've been talking, thinking back to my childhood, admittedly, like you know, a, an incredibly long time ago. Um, but bookies themselves. So you, you know, you're talking about advertising in football stadiums, and you're talking about taking, you know, taking kids to to play football. But walking down a high street, you're walking past many bookies, and on these bookies themselves, in the windows, they've got life-size pictures of footballers, Premier League footballers. They just there with the with the tops on and with the um gambling with the gambling sponsor on, but also the um the bookies itself. So it's this kind of it's just there. This visual experience is there all the time. So a kid walks past the bookies and sees it, right? For me, just the the, the fact that it's there is something I never even appreciated before. Because when I was a kid, you never saw this on the outside of bookies. Bookies never had these kind of visual presences. They were there. You knew they were there, but it would be literally a couple of pictures of some running horses and nothing else. But now it's just it's that's so loud on there. So yeah. And, it, and it's it's just it's crept it's just crept to this stage, right? Um, so absolutely, yeah, it is. It's it's really um, a much bigger issue than I'd even anticipated before reading this paper. So so yeah, so thank you. Yeah, I guess it's associated now with kind of fast cars, fancy lifestyle. There's like a, a gloss to it that didn't exist years ago. Years ago, bookmakers were kind of slightly seedy places well, where no. <laughs> where older people went. Whereas now, it's it's kind of you know linked to that kind of prosperity and, and doing well and you know achieving stuff and yeah know. and that's clearly what they're trying to magically enact through association with the premiership yeah. they're trying to associate themselves with a prestigious brand so i mean the number of betting companies who don't have anything to do with the uk who are online gambling companies aimed at, towards asia who are yeah. sponsored uh, who are sponsoring premiership clubs that's about that association with the premiership. It's about that kind of prestigious level of gambling that's not that CD 1980s bookmaker. Yeah. Like, like you said, with just one image of a 
like another horse on the front. Like it's about changing how gambling is perceived. And I mean, it's entirely understandable that like that's like what they're engaged with at the level of marketing. It's just, it's not targeted marketing that's directly faced towards adults who want to gamble. It's like catching children in the crosshairs. And there's now 50,000 children in the United Kingdom with uh, recognized problems with gambling. Like 50,000 under 17 year olds who are problem gamblers, that's really problematic. And uh, uh, yeah, it's incredibly hard to, without uh, any kind of doubt, prove that there is cause and effect between gambling advertising uh, on, on Premiership football and those 50,000 kids who have gambling problems. Yeah, so the fact that these two things coexist ought to suggest to the wider world, to those who are in a position to change the regulations around gambling advertising, like this this ought to be their first concern rather than maximizing the revenues of, of gambling firms. Like protecting children from gambling advertising ought to be think, thought about in the same kind of public health related mindset as we have applied to smoking advertising, as we have applied to alcohol-related advertising, watersheds, getting it off like clothing that is regularly consumed, even if it's not the clothing that's regularly worn by children. Like These are just baby steps towards having a, a less harmful gambling advertising-related industry. Actually, we found that, didn't we? When we, we looked at merchandising, actually, from the Premiership clubs themselves, what they were selling, and we actually found, like, even on products marketed for children, they weren't, they didn't have the logos on players' shirts, but there were T-shirts with pictures of players who then did have logos, you know, Monopoly games where there's logos all through it. So it's like, um, yeah, the regulations just aren't strong enough. Yeah, absolutely. You know what it is? It's like, um, it reminds me of like chocolate cigarettes times a zillion, right? That's exactly what it is. It's a gateway. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's also depressing how pervasive it is, even among, say, adult friends. I mean, I've actually been in situations where I'm watching a game on TV and I'll notice a friend will be looking at how many corners have been won. Because if they get 17 corners in the game, they've won on their particular betting algorithm or however it works. So it is depressing the extent to which it has pervaded football. And I mean, personally, I think... VAR, its introduction, I think, behind the scenes, there must be something to do with gambling there and the obsession with collecting the correct data to then give people their winnings. But I guess we'll never know that. (laughs) Um, We've actually come to the end of our questions, Natalie and Gavin. Thank you so much for joining us. If our listeners want to engage with your project further and your research, is there somewhere they can go online to find out more about what you did? The best place is to go online to, to check out the information in a readily accessible form is, is probably the mainstream media. So, <laughs> so, the, so our articles are probably not the most accessible. So particularly <laughs> the one on um, recall of, of gambling advertising is written for a public health related audience and it's written with statistical data aimed at a very specific audience. But the filtering out of those findings into the mainstream media has been really interesting to look at. It's one of the few issues that unifies both the left hand of the like, mainstream media and, and the right hand. Mm-hmm. Like when you're getting The Guardian and The Daily Mail reporting on the same stories, what you end up having is a really interesting moment where like, no matter what your politics are, 
it's there in a new for you to engage with. And so, I mean, our, our study has gone out there into the news stream and that's something that we've been really happy with. And so that's what we would recommend, just keeping an eye on this in the news and in particular, keeping an eye on, on the gambling review that's happening right now. Because, yeah, the government needs holding to account on this one. There's a large number of gambling lobbyists in Parliament. Um, we've probably lost our the best supporter of the anti-gambling lobby when, when Cobb Watson defected to go and take money from Paddy Power. That was, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a real shame. But so, like, one of the big voices that was there in Parliament's now gone. And um, I think the more stories that we see in the mainstream media about the problems of gambling and, and gambling sponsorship over the next month or so, the better. Mm. So, yeah, just keep, keep an eye on the news. Brilliant. Well, we'll include some links for our listeners when we release this podcast so they can look further into that. Thank you so much once again for joining us. That's all today from Football and Society. We'll be back with you soon. Mm.